Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. With winter just about spent, parks are beginning to look forward to the busy summer travel season. And you can expect many of the same precautions against the spread of COVID that you saw in the parks last year to return this year as we noted this past week in a release from Grand Teton National Park. We also detailed in an in-depth story by Jonathan Horwitz the harsh impacts the closure of the Hubble Trading Post National Monument brought to Navajo artisans. And we reported on the views of two geologists regarding potential impacts of drilling for oil in Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida and brought word of the release of six bison in Banff National Park in Alberta. For those and other stories about national parks and protected areas, visit nationalparkstraveler.org. If you've ever been to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, you know it's an ideal place to see bear, elk, and other mammals, large and small. But too often, the place these wild animals are seen most is dead along the side of Interstate 40 in the Pigeon River Gorge, victims of a fragmented habitat combined with an increasing number of motor vehicles. So, a collaborative effort to study wildlife mortality from motor vehicle collisions and find solutions for wildlife to safely cross this winding highway along the Pigeon River outside the National Park is fully underway with nearly 100 stakeholders in North Carolina and Tennessee. The Traveler's Lynn Riddick reached out to Jeff Hunter, facilitator of the project, to learn how it will come to fruition and the greater benefits to us all when we can create safe places for animals to cross roadways. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Traffic on Interstate 40 in the Pigeon River Gorge has almost doubled in the past 16 years, and that has resulted in an increasing number of wild animals struck by motor vehicles. 
So collaborators have created the new Safe Passage I-40 Pigeon River Gorge Wildlife Crossing Project. They are working to collect needed data to help identify where and how best to create wildlife crossings along this 28-mile stretch of highway in western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee. Jeff Hunter is the project's facilitator. He's also a senior program manager at the National Parks Conservation Association. He's joining us from his home office in Burnsville, North Carolina. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to The Traveler. Thanks, Lynn. It's great to be here. I want to talk about the Safe Passage Pigeon River Gorge project in a bit, but first I want to ask you about the paths and routes wildlife follow to find water, food, and mating partners, these so-called wildlife corridors. Tell us more about wildlife corridors and why they are so important and so ingrained in the behavior of animals. Sure, I'm happy to. So what we're seeing here in the Pigeon River Gorge and elsewhere is that uh, wildlife generally moves the, along the path of least resistance. They're often ridge runners and gap crossers. Gaps, of course, being low spots in the mountains. And when the interstate where we are was open, it sort of severed that. Uh, you're seeing similar issues in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem where there are something like nine or 10 different elk migratory routes that are historic. And that's threatened with development and fencing and human development that creates barriers or obstacles to wildlife. And so this is a really good time nationwide to take a close look at wildlife corridors, how they intersect with highways so that we can keep the public, the, the, the motoring public safe and our wildlife populations viable. What else can you tell us about the wildlife corridors in that Great Smoky Mountain region? Sure. So we're looking at a 28-mile stretch of highway, eight miles in Tennessee and 20 miles in North Carolina. And what we're seeing is some mortality hotspots associated with the public lands. You know, you have uh, some private lands um, close to Maggie Valley. That's at the southern extent of our area and sort of in the core near the state line. You have the Cherokee National Forest in Tennessee and the Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. And the vast majority of wildlife that we're seeing, whether it's animals we're photographing with our cameras in the right of way or moving through existing structures under the highway or being killed on the highway, it's clearly associated with public lands. You know, this is not inside the boundary of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's just outside the boundaries. The Smokies is a huge park for the east. It's something like 523,000 acres. But research has shown that 90% of the male bears in the park leave the park at some point in time to meet some aspect of their, uh, of their needs, whether it's finding food, finding mates, or finding shelter, and half the female bears leave. I read that an estimated 1.25 million insurance claims are filed each year in the U.S. due to collisions with deer, elk, and moose, and animal-related vehicular damage totals $1.2 billion. Of course, there is the loss of human lives as well as severe injuries. What can you tell us about mortality and injury stats on the wildlife side of the equation? So nationally, uh, the estimate is somewhere between one and two million large animals that are hit and killed on the roadway every year. Uh, in the States here, we don't have standards for collecting mortality data currently. So in North Carolina, for instance, they just released a three-year study on 
wildlife vehicle collisions. And there were something like 58,000 incidents with five mortalities, five human mortalities in a three-year period of time. But in order to land on that report, there had to be a police report. Now, do you think that every time someone hits an animal, there's a police report? Clearly not. So uh, while that's a good estimate, those numbers are clearly underrepresented. And we see that nationally. Um, here in the gorge, we had anecdotal information from a wildlife biologist of 70 bear mortalities in one year. And the DOT in North Carolina counted 129 dead bears one year. Let me be really clear about this. It's somewhat cyclical with the mortality, particularly when it comes to black bears, when the acorn crop fails, they need to go farther and wider for food. And you do have these uh, periodic failures, what they call a, a hard mast failure. And acorns are a very important part of black bears diet here in the Smokies. And, and so when that crop fails, the number of animals killed on I-40 spikes. So wildlife crossing solutions are increasingly emerging to mitigate animal deaths, human deaths and injuries, and the direct and indirect costs of collisions with animals. What have proven to be the most successful types of wildlife crossings? Sure. Well, it, it always is species specific. Uh, there's there's a new discipline that's emerged in the last couple of decades called road ecology. And these are scientists that study the ecological impacts of roads, including impacts upon wildlife. Uh, and studies have shown that structures have to be tailored to the wildlife that's found on the ground. For instance, down in Florida with the Florida panther, cats are very secretive. They like underpasses. Up in Banff National Park in Alberta, Canada, uh, grizzly bears, uh, like big open structures. So wildlife bridges are effective there. Same for elk. Elk like big, large, open structures. So scientists have to take into account the specific species you have in an area if you want to mitigate. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about maybe where some of these other animal structures are. You mentioned the Banff Bridge, and I actually saw that in 2013. I was on the way from Banff to Calgary on the Trans-Canadian Highway, and as we approached, I wasn't really sure what I was looking at. I'd never seen anything like that before, and it was just uh, a bridge that kind of rose on each end and dipped down in the middle, and I saw that it was covered with grass and pine trees, and it was lined with a wire fence, and I, in fact, saw fencing along the much of that highway. And so I understand that that particular bridge um, is, I don't know, 20 years old now, and it's been really successful in reducing vehicle collisions with wildlife. So I guess, what have we learned from our Canadian neighbors or other countries for that matter about the best practices for animal crossings? You know, like you mentioned, it's very species specific. So we've actually brought some folks down, some consultants who have worked on that project in Banff to share some of their knowledge with us. And research is really key to identify the locations. When you see animals hit on the side of the road, you know that's where they're not successfully crossing, but it may not tell you where they are successfully crossing. And they could be successfully crossing today in one location, but with the increase in traffic, it could be become a problem uh, in future years. So fencing is absolutely um, essential for these structures to be effective, whether it's an underpass or an overpass, you need to funnel wildlife uh, into these structures. And over time, generationally, uh, wildlife will 
teach their young to use these structures. Uh, interestingly enough, there's a road ecologist who has been monitoring the BAMP structures for the past um, 19 or 20 years, Tony Clevenger. Uh, and Dr. Clevenger got his master's degree here in Tennessee at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, studying under uh, Mike Pelton, a bear researcher. And one of the things that Tony has told us is that in their monitoring in the first couple of years, if they just used that data, the project would have seemed uh, to not have been a success. But as the structures age in year three, year four, you start to see a spike in their use. So it's really essential to, to monitor the effectiveness of these structures. Also, you might've seen what they call jump out uh, structures. You know, if you have a fence to exclude wildlife, to separate motorists from, from wildlife, occasionally, you know, an animal can get inside that fence, whether they climb over it in the case of a bear or uh, the tree falls on the fence or if a car goes through a fence and it's not maintained, it's really important to have places for the wildlife to get to get off the highway. And so you'll see those jump out structures uh, associated with fencing and these crossing structures. What about roadway animal detection systems? Um, what are they? Can you explain and have they helped? Sure, we talked about um, this as a potential solution uh, on US 19 where the Blue Ridge Parkway crosses over that highway. This is not far actually from our project area. It's right on the boundary of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And the issue here is it's sort of at the, the top of a, a grade, so the sight lines are not good. And elk tend to hang out in the grassy areas adjacent to the Blue Ridge Parkway. So we did discuss the idea of animal detection systems. These systems have improved over time. They can actually de detect a specific species. Uh, you can, you can program it basically to pick up elk or, or white-tailed deer or uh, bear. The problems are when you start getting false positives. You know, we, we get these with our wildlife cameras. Sometimes when the wind blows, you know, we get a thousand pictures of a branch. Similarly, uh, you know, if there's something that goes wrong with the animal detector system uh, and it flashes like there's an active animal there and there isn't actually an animal crossing, people tend to start ignoring those signs. So that's one of the challenges. You, they're expensive to maintain. You have to maintain them. They've been effective in some areas, but it, it doesn't seem like a solution that uh, the North Carolina Department of Transportation wants to invest in at this time. I want to talk a little bit more about this project. You are the facilitator of a collaborative effort known as Safe Passage I-40 Pigeon River Gorge Wildlife Crossing Project. Interstate 40 winds for 28 miles, as you've said, along the Pigeon River in western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee. Describe that area, its proximity to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and why the Great Smoky Mountains area is such a biodiversity hotspot. So for the listeners who may not be familiar with this highway, it runs from Barstow, California, to Wilmington, North Carolina, on the coast. The roadway in the gorge varies sometimes it's two, three, four, five miles from the boundary of the park. When the roadway opened in 1968, it actually bisected two national forests. And of course, the park is just south and west of a highway and it's brimming with wildlife and you know, elk and bear and deer, they certainly can't recognize the park boundary. So they come out and occasionally attempt to cross. 
A journalist just wrote an article about the area and his five-year-old son referred to the Pigeon River Gorge Road as the Wiggles because it is windy, it's narrow, it has an incredible amount of truck traffic on it. And it's, it can be a frightening stretch of highway to drive in good weather, forget rainy weather or snowy weather. And so this roadway, which was opened in 1968, is smack dab next to uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is one of the most biodiverse parks in the temperate world. Why that is, I, I think some of that has to do with glaciation and it was uh, a refuge for wildlife. You know, you have these 6,000 foot peaks in the Smokies where you have spruce fir forest and the area has remained largely undeveloped. Granted, in the early part of last century, there was a lot of logging in the park. The park has about 120 or so thousand acres of old growth forest. So structurally, it offers habitat for an incredibly wide range of critters. And here there's a park partner, uh, Discover Life in America, that's actually doing an all tax of biodiversity inventory, and they're discovering new species every year. So, you know, the scientific story is still unfolding, it's still being written, and it's really exciting. But, you know, this is the most visited national park in the system. And so we'd like to try to protect not only the motorists, but certainly the wildlife Let's talk a little bit more about wildlife crossings and how they restore habitat connectivity. Why is that important? Fragmentation is a, is a major issue for wildlife. Some, some bird species really like fragmentation. They like to hang out on the edge. Uh, other critters don't do well with it. You know, black bears have large home ranges and they need to move across these large landscapes. So when you have a habitat that's fragmented by a roadway like I-40 with a large volume of traffic, it just, it creates this barrier. A connected landscape is a more resilient landscape. It's more resilient uh, for the forest. It's more resilient for the mammals that inhabit that forest. And so while our target species for this project are elk, black bear, and white-tailed deer, um, those species were selected because you can quantify property damage impacts in collisions with those animals. You know, in 1968, when the roadway opened, there was only a fraction of the bear population that we have now on the landscape, maybe a quarter of the number of animals that we have now. Uh, the current estimate for black bears in the park is about 1900. So this is a core area for bears in the Southern Appalachian Mountains. But it wasn't always that way. You know, they there weren't a lot of animals in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, Dr. Mike Pelton, the bear researcher, you know, some of his research was instrumental in creating um, black bear refuges where they couldn't be hunted in the national park so that females could have cubs and the population could rebound. And this has been quite successful. So we have a large and still growing population of bear here in these mountains. Why weren't there many bears there in that area prior to the highway? You know, it, it may have been related to, to persecution um, hunting, but I'm not really sure. Land use patterns. Um, but here, you know, in the last 20 years, the area is really building out. So the Smokies has become an island in a sea of uh, development surrounded and ringed by motorways. So it's, it's always a daunting challenge for, for wildlife to get across the roads. Uh, they're still actively hunted here. It's an important part of the culture in East Tennessee and, and Western North Carolina. Uh, and bears are beloved by almost everybody. People in Tennessee really love their bears as well as North Carolina. 
Now, that area has a high conservation value. Can you explain that for us? Sure. Well, in a warming world, um, intact forest uh, sequesters carbon into the soil, into the, the biomass. You know, the tremendous biodiversity that we talked about a short time ago, uh, we need to protect the habitat in order to maintain that, that biodiversity. But when it comes to climate, you know, I've talked about reducing collisions and keeping motorists safe, but there's one really important part of this puzzle that, um, that I want to share with you, which is in a warming world, you know, each species, uh, each wildlife species has a climate envelope. They like a certain temperature, certain precipitation, and uh, records have shown, uh, data has shown that wildlife in response to a warming world is moving towards the poles. In this case, wildlife needs to move north, and there is I-40 smack dab in the middle, creating a barrier. So right now, with 26,000 vehicles a day, you know, some animals try to cross and succeed. Some will try to cross and they won't succeed. They'll get hit. Some will never try to cross because the noise, the lights is just too much for them. Think about this. Um, our partners at 2WRA, the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency told me, um, Dan Gibbs, the black bear coordinator in the state of Tennessee said that bears have a sense of smell that's seven times greater than a bloodhound. So imagine a black bear coming up against this noisy highway with the smell of diesel fumes and exhaust. You know, studies have shown this stresses animals. We can see it in some of our, our data from our camera traps. You could see these animals walking back and forth, panting, looking at the roadway, trying to figure it out. So my point is, right now we're seeing mortality. At some point when we get to, I don't know, 35,000, 40,000 vehicles a day, 45,000 vehicles a day. I don't know what the number is, but at some point there will be a hard barrier where virtually nothing terrestrial will be able to cross. And that's actually a bigger problem than if you have no mortality because stuff needs to move with climate. And if it can't, then we've got real problems. After this short break, I'll be back with Jeff Hunter to hear more about the Safe Passage Pigeon River Gorge Initiative. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Interior Federal Credit Union is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. Take them with you wherever you go with digital banking and stay connected. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit their website at interiorfcu.org to learn how to join. Start this weekend. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. 
Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. and I'm back with Jeff Hunter from the National Parks Conservation Association. I want to go back to the numbers of animal mortalities and how difficult they are to count. Talk a little bit about why this is difficult to obtain and how animal mortality data might be quite higher than you previously thought. Well, in this multi-jurisdictional interstate project area, you know, we've got two departments of transportation. Uh, we've got the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency and the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission. Uh, and data on mortality was siloed across a variety of different agencies. There's no common system. So uh, our research biologist, uh, biologist Steve Goodman, who works with me at NPCA, and, and Dr. Liz Hillard with Wildlands Network, uh, implemented some driving surveys where they can methodically go out in a systematic way regularly to look for carcasses on the side of the road, or sometimes they're in the roadway, or sometimes they're in the median. And so what we've seen is nearly a six-fold increase in mortality data since we started intensively collecting the data, which clearly shows you that it was undercounted in prior years. I understand that some motorists will pull over and pick up an animal carcass. So you have that. That's true. You know, uh, here in Appalachia, uh, there is a lot of poverty in these hills and there's a lot of hunger. And so you hardly can fault someone for wanting to pull over and consume an animal, whether it's a deer or a bear. So sometimes the carcasses will be picked up by folks. Hopefully we can identify the incident and, and capture it and, actually get the GPS location. Having the actual location where this occurred is really important in the, in the puzzle. You know, it's always sad to see a dead animal, a dead deer along the side of the road. And I really can't imagine how upsetting it would be to see a dead bear or a dead bear cub. What's your experience with this? How often do you see something like that? Too often? I guess that's the, the easiest answer. Um, it doesn't get any easier for me. You know, I have found that the older I get, the more wildlife mortality I'm seeing on the side of the roads and the more it tends to bother me. I guess you can become immune to it and just sort of look the other way. So I'm grateful to be able to have the opportunity to work with my partners to try to come up with a solution. I know that I've now given my colleague, uh, Steve, some direction to not simply text me a photograph of a carcass because um, uh, there was one or two incidents where I was just, it, I was so horrified. I was just reduced to a puddle looking at the image. I mean, I, they're not images that, that we would want to share with the public because it, it, you know, it can be traumatizing quite frankly. So, you know, I, I get a, a visceral emotional reaction to seeing it. I have hit a couple of deer in my life 
and, and they didn't survive. And thankfully I, I haven't hit a bear yet. I, I try to drive, observe the speed limit and particularly be careful dawn and dusk around here. That's when animals are often moving. What's the speed limit down there on I-40? In the gorge, it's 55. Frankly, nobody wants, nobody wants to hit an animal. Nobody wants to see a dead animal on the side of the road. So this is really a win-win what we're trying to do is keep the motorists safe and keep the wildlife safe at the same time and keep that traffic and the commerce moving on I-40 and allow the wildlife to get under the highway or over the highway. Yeah, all you need to do is go on YouTube and there's tons of video clips of mama bears and their cubs crossing the road. But you have one particular video clip that states your case quite well. Tell us about that video, where it came from, and the emotions it evokes. Sure. I believe this was uh, taken in August of 2018 by Susan Detweiler, who just happened to be a motorist driving this section of roadway uh, on a Sunday afternoon in August in the summertime. And a mama bear and three cubs were trying to cross the highway. And in this 16-second video, you can see both the, the human safety issue and the wildlife peril. Traffic is at a complete standstill on the westbound side of the, the highway while these animals cross. And you can see tractor trailers at the back of the stop traffic. And as uh, the animals cross, you know, a moving truck comes by and passes through. So certainly you don't want to stop on the highway. We can't have citizen science as part of our project because it's so perilous. We, we just can't have people pulling over on the shoulder to record incidents. Uh, so this woman, she was there at the right time. She had her phone out. She captured this incident and she shared the video with, with me and allowed us to use it. I usually show it whenever I give a public program and say, in this this 16 seconds is going to say more than I can in half an hour or 45 minutes. And, and people really get it when they see the video. Yeah, you're right. Because it's, it's fascinating. It's heartbreaking. It's the, the cubs are cute. You see the behavior as they respond to their mother and their mother making sure they get across, but it's just sort of unacceptable even. Well, you know, that this is the societal question we have to ask ourselves. You know, what is our motivation for doing this? Is it here in the States, it's often safety that drives these issues. But in other countries, particularly uh, in Europe, it's often wildlife conservation that is the value that's driving the, the construction of these structures. So I would just say as, as our population grows and uh, as we understand that these structures can work and they can not only reduce wildlife vehicle collisions, but they can pay for themselves. You know, if, if you build a structure that lasts 75 or 80 years and you reduce all the property damage and the, uh, the personal injury that's associated with these um, accidents, they can pay for themselves. Um, Marcel Hauser is a, um, he works with the Western Transportation Institute. He's a road ecologist and he has um, shared a lot of information. There's a lot of research that, that actually demonstrates how these things can, can save money and lives. You know, I want to go back to elk. So elk was reintroduced in the area in 2001. Go into more details about the specific challenges with elk, their migrating habits, and you know why collisions with them are a little different from striking a deer, say. So let me be clear about, about the elk population here. You know, these animals are not like what you find in Yellowstone. In Yellowstone, 
you know, elk generally will leave the park in the wintertime because it's, it's cold and inhospitable. So they move out of the park for their winter range and they move back into the park for the spring and the summer and the fall. And here in the Smokies, we have a low density population in a closed canopy forest. And so um, there aren't as many, however, they do get hit on the roadways and a bull elk can run 900 or a thousand pounds. I, I believe there was a 997 pound bull elk hit on US 19 a couple of years ago, uh, hit and killed. And thankfully uh, the motorists who struck the, the elk were not killed. Another issue with the, with the elk, it's interesting. You do find with the elk that sometimes the young bulls will set out. They're travelers and they'll leave the Smokies and they'll go down to South Carolina. We actually had a collared animal that went down to South Carolina, came back up to North Carolina, crossed under I-40, went over to Tennessee, came back, crossed back under I-40 and went back into the park. Uh, we also had uh, a bull that left the park and went a considerable distance south of the park near Murphy, North Carolina, where it was struck and killed by a vehicle. Again, thankfully, there wasn't a human fatality. Didn't end well for the elk, but the vehicle was totaled, and there was a GPS collar on this animal, so they could actually, the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission and Wild Dance Network could, could see where this animal moved on its way to where it met its end. How many elk are down in that area? That's a great question. We don't actually know. The park and uh, the wildlife agencies have just worked on a cooperative agreement for a study that's being led out of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. They're going to use DNA by collecting scat. Um, they're hoping to be able to get a better number on the population size. Right now, what they do is they do these minimum counts where uh, volunteers and representatives from various agencies will fan out on one day and they'll count as many elk as they can see. And that's the minimum number. I mean, we know there's that many. But again, this is a, a closed canopy forest. You know, really dense forest. It's it's hard to count an animal that's that's out in the woods in the Smokies or in the in the national forest surrounding the park. So 150 is the number we hear. And talking to the biologists, there's there is some concern that some of the the collisions we've seen and the mortality we've seen with elk, that if we have a couple of bad years, um, particularly around US-19, that it could jeopardize the population, particularly if we lose females. The females are the, the ones that reproduce. A population can often sustain some mortality with losing uh, the bull, the males, but females are more problematic. Let's talk some more about the Safe Passage Initiative. How and when did it come about? I started facilitating the work of uh, this collaborative group, which is, um, involves federal, state, tribal, and non-governmental organizations in February of 2017. So we've been meeting for a little over four years. Uh, in, I believe it was April of 2019, the North Carolina Department of Transportation announced that they were gonna be replacing the bridge on I-40 at, at a place called Harmon Den. Uh, Harmon Den is one place that a lot of people get off the highway to access the Appalachian Trail at a place called Max Patch. It's one of our Southern Appalachian grassy bulbs. To get there, you have to go through a wildlife management area. In 2015, an elk crossed underneath the highway at this location to get to the other side of the highway opposite the park. And since then, 
uh, a small population has been growing on that side. So this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to improve passage at this structure. Once the bridge is replaced, the changes are baked in. If we don't have wildlife passage in that area, then we're not gonna have wildlife passage likely uh, for 50 or 75 years for whatever the lifespan of this bridge is. So a lot of the non-governmental organizations expressed an interest in, in getting involved. And unfortunately there was no federal or state money for um, wildlife mitigation or safety available for this project. So we were either going to not have any wildlife passage considerations to this structure, or we were gonna raise the money ourselves to actually have this done. So safe passage was born out of necessity in order to uh, implement wildlife crossing at Harmon Den. And uh, the non-governmental organizations that are working in partnership include the North Carolina Wildlife Federation, the Conservation Fund, Great Smoky Mountains Association, Defenders of Wildlife, Wildlands Network, and National Parks Conservation Association. Those are the six groups that have come together to create the Smoky Safe Passage website. And, you know, it's frankly, it's a beautiful thing when you see organizations with different missions, different decision-making processes, uh, different prioritization schemes uh, come together in common cause to try to make the world a better place. Yeah, I was wondering how complicated it is to coordinate with so many organizations. Well, I, I told someone the other day that I wouldn't want to be in year one of this project in 2020. You know, I, I think that it took us a couple of years to start to build the relationships across agencies and nonprofits and to develop some trust and be able to work together to understand our jargon, our language. You know, here we are, we have wildlife biologists and we have highway engineers. Well, highway engineers deal in certainty and wildlife biologists deal in probability. So how do you bridge that chasm? How do you bring people together? It just takes time. And so our focus, our decision was to conduct research and follow the science to really get down to brass tacks. Let's see what's going on. So uh, the park, the state wildlife agencies, the DOTs, the NGOs, Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, all the folks who are coming to the table have a vested interest in learning more. And so that information will be shared and will lead to our recommendations to the DOT for mitigation. Hopefully we'll be able to offer those mitigation recommendations sometime in the third quarter of this year. So are those the goals then, the recommendation, the ultimate goal that you want to have prepared? Right. So, you know, I talked about the replacement of the bridge at Harmon Den. That was unanticipated when we first started meeting in February of 2017. So, you know, we, we, we had to deal with that um, out of necessity. All along, our focus was on the 28-mile stretch of roadway and how and where we might be able to make some recommendations, some changes that will you know, keep wildlife and humans safe. So, you know, it's a nice problem to have to come together around um, something that emerges in the middle of a project, but the 28 mile corridor is, is really where our focus is and has been. And so the research is going to lead to some recommendations. I don't know what those recommendations will be yet. Uh, I think the, the researchers at Wild Dance Network and, and my colleague, uh, Steve Goodman at NPCA don't know the answer yet, but it, the answer is in the data. And so, we're going to follow it. You mentioned Harmon Den, um, and there are four other old bridges that need to be restored or replaced at some point in time. 
And those are a real opportunity, correct? They are. I, I would say not at all the bridges because um, a couple of the bridges are just in a, a, their location, their proximity to develop lands. You know, the fact that we're, we may not be, we're not seeing wildlife evenly across the landscape. As I mentioned earlier, you know, most of the wildlife we're seeing is in the public land. So a couple of these uh, bridges are going to be, uh, there's not going to be much opportunity, but with a couple of them, there, there certainly are. And Harmondan is, is uh, an example. My colleague Steve sent me uh, some photographs from one of our cameras for one month. Uh, and we had, you know, nine species at one of our cameras at Harmondan, nine species of mammals that he sent me a photograph of. I'm sure we had quite a few others, but, you know, we're talking bobcat, deer, bear, possum, mink, otter, you name it. Great blue heron, actually, in that in that set of photos too. We we sometimes see birds. Um, in this case, in the middle of Cold Spring Creek, which flows into the Pigeon River at Harmon Dam. So, what are usually the biggest objections or obstacles in making the case for these animal crossings that you have heard of or that you're hearing now? Well, I haven't heard a lot of objections. Um, you know, sometimes fiscal conservatives will push back and say, "Hey, you know." We, we can't be spending that. that. That's a value judgment. And, and certainly it's an important discussion to have when, when you're dealing with public lands and when you're dealing with public dollars. But as I mentioned earlier, the, these things can pay for themselves. It, this, is, this is as conservative a project as you're going to find. We're trying to uh, conserve wildlife and we're trying to save the general public from uh, personal injury, from death, and from property damage. And, and we can do that in a way that's a win-win. So, you know, not many people are opposed to this sort of project. I, I have not personally met a single person yet. That's not to say they aren't out there. I'm sure they are. But I think the argument we have is pretty persuasive. Do you think this could be a model program going forward? Well, you know, the way this project is unfolding is, is somewhat unique. And there are efforts around the country in different places, in Colorado and Summit County, for instance. We, we consulted with some of those folks on the good work they're doing out by Vail Pass on I-70, I believe. You know, NPCA is working to improve connectivity at national parks around the country, whether it's in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem or in Arizona or in California. And the mountain lion project that the National Wildlife Federation is leading, we're, we're playing a small role there. And our partners, you know, at Wild Dance Network are doing great work in, in Virginia and uh, New Mexico and, and Oregon on state level uh, legislation to identify corridors and, uh, and address these issues. So uh, I think this issue has really captured the public. Lynn, you might have seen the video in, in Utah of this new structure over I-80. I mean, it, it got out on, on social yeah, media. If, if I had a dollar for every time someone forwarded that to me, um, you know, I'd, I'd be able to stay in a nice hotel at least. So people people get excited by the prospect of doing the right thing by wildlife. And, and in fact, in doing so, they're doing the right thing by themselves as a motorist. Yeah, I have seen that video. And um, I would be remiss not to mention the Tobin Land Bridge, which just opened in San Antonio, Texas, where I live, and it's only about two miles from my house. And it connects two sides of a park that's separated by a parkway. And this bridge is huge. It's 190 feet long by 150 feet wide. And it's 
now the largest land bridge in the country. And it really is the Ferrari version. Uh, Let me tell you about this. It has a winding walking path for humans and a sky bridge. It has animal viewing blinds. It's completely irrigated with collected rainwater. On the side are eight-foot noise-dampening steel walls. And with the exception of hearing some traffic noise, you're hardly aware that you're crossing over a, a road. It cost $23 million. $10 million came from private donations. And it's really a tourist attraction in itself. It just opened. It really is something to see. And I hope you come to San Antonio to see it. But my question to you might be, do you think a bridge like this is an inspiration or a deterrent to other organizations pondering animal bridges? You know, because they don't have to be this fancy. You know, I think it's an inspiration. You know, this is Texas, so everything's bigger in Texas, or so they say. Go Texas. I'm, I'm really pleased that this structure was built in San Antonio. I'd be curious to know what the target species is. I, I suspect it's white-tailed deer, because I know there's so many deer in Texas. I think it's an inspiration for sure. You know, our interstate highway system is just, it's sprawling. And the impacts on the environment and wildlife are, are just, you know, very considerable. So uh, we've seen incremental progress. I think that uh, with projects like the one you're talking about in San Antonio and the one in Utah and the, the, the one that uh, is being um, focused on the Santa Monica Mountains, you know, I think people are inspired. All of a sudden they understand, oh, there are solutions to these problems. We don't have to keep driving by dead carcasses, you know, on a daily or weekly basis. There's actually something that can be done about it. So these structures are, it's an educational opportunity. You know, you mentioned when you first drove over under one at Banff, you were educated. You learned what they were for, what their purpose was for. In this case, it was largely to keep elk off the Trans-Canada Highway and to allow female grizzly bears to cross the road because it had fragmented the population of grizzly bears. But, you know, up there they have uh, wolves and mountain lions and all kinds of critters. Uh, and, and they're seeing use by a wide variety of, of mammals, small and large. What's the status of the project right now, today? What are the next steps? Well, we're going to be convening the stakeholders uh, here in the first quarter, later, um, soon. Uh, so we'll be getting together. Um, we'll be uh, analyzing uh, the voluminous data from our two years of research and, and recommending some mitigation activities to the two departments of transportation. Uh, we're going to continue our research in that Pigeon River Gorge corridor along I-40 in some targeted areas where we, you know, we want to dive in and get a little bit more intensive data. But we're also looking at uh, US-19 between Maggie Valley and Cherokee, North Carolina. Uh, this is the road I mentioned earlier, the, the Blue Ridge Parkway passes over it. Uh, we're hoping to undertake some research with the Eastern Band of Cherokee uh, because the, the tribe, frankly, uh, is disproportionately impacted by wildlife vehicle collisions. You know, the, the, the Kuala boundaries there, uh, tribal members live there, they, they drive to work and they're often elk in the roadway. Uh, it may be a little more of a challenge to address wildlife vehicle collisions on that stretch of roadway because of development patterns and, and, and private lands, but we're going to take a good look at it. Anything else important about the Pigeon River program you'd like to mention? Absolutely. 
So we just launched uh, a new website, smokiessafepassage.org. Uh, it contains a lot of information about the project. And it's one way that the listener can log on, not only learn about this project, but contribute to the fund that we've set up. In the short term, we're looking at fencing along Harmon Den. Uh, the DOT won't pay for that. And, you know, that's going to be a considerable expense. So folks can not only learn, but they can actually help affect change on the ground. The last thing that I would like the listener to take away from this interview is that NPCA is doing these great things in the Pigeon River Gorge. We're, we are one of a number of organizations that are coming together. This is not the sort of issue that, that myself or my organization can affect change by ourselves. It requires you know, all the players coming together. And so it's, it's inspiring, it's challenging sometimes, um, but we, we will will persevere and hopefully this will become an inspiration for other friends groups around parks around the country. They, they might get the idea that the problems they're seeing around their parks and their forests can be addressed. Jeff, I want to thank you for your time today. We will be watching the progress of this initiative and we hope you'll share more with us down the road. Lynn, thank you so much for the time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be sitting down with Kevin Schneider, superintendent of Acadia National Park, to discuss a wide range of issues, from a reservation system kicking in for motoring along parts of the park's loop road and up to the summit of Cadillac Mountain, to the uniqueness of the national park that shimmers on Mount Desert Island just off the coast of Maine. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Travelers' coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.